Michael Ashcroft, the founder of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and this is the Ashcroft in America podcast. With less than two weeks to go until the presidential election, the Ashcroft in America team is in Florida. Since the recount that transfixed the world 16 years ago, this has become known as the ultimate swing state. Indeed, with one exception, Florida has been carried by the winning candidate in every presidential election since 1964. Florida's population is a perfect microcosm of the United States as a whole, and with 29 electoral college votes, it has the most clapped of all the swing states. Most recent polls give Hillary Clinton the edge here in the presidential race. Her lead makes things harder for Marco Rubio, who stood against Donald Trump in the Republican primaries and is facing a tough re-election battle for his seat in the U.S. Senate. In our focus groups, we'll be hearing from voters in Miami, whose richly diverse population includes many of Latino heritage, and in Tampa, traditionally the area with the most swing voters, as well as many families with military connections. We are here to find out what they're thinking as they approach their final decisions. Hello, I'm Kevin Colwick, the director of Lord Ashcroft Polls, and I'm here in glorious Tampa with Elise Jordan, MSNBC political analyst, columnist for Time magazine, and Ashcroft in America co-host. The presidential election is in just 10 days, and Florida is ground zero for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton to make their closing arguments. In Miami, we were delayed in an epic traffic jam because both candidates and President Obama came to town on the same day. Luckily for us, Lord Ashcroft was driving, not Kevin. Charming. To help us understand the state of play in the Sunshine State, I spoke to pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson, a Florida native, about what the research is telling us with less than two weeks to go. Elise talked to presidential historian John Darman about the possibility of a landslide victory for Hillary Clinton. MSNBC host Joe Scarborough told Lord Ashcroft what it's like covering Donald Trump. And in our focus groups, we spoke to Hispanic voters in Miami and people in Tampa with strong connections to the military. In the news, Hillary Clinton has solidified her lead over Donald Trump in the national and state polls. Donald Trump tweeted that he was beyond Brexit, Brexit plus and Brexit times five. Trump delivered a speech in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, outlining the plan for his first hundred days as president, including term limits for Congress, renegotiating trade deals, and suspending immigration from terror-prone regions. The Washington Post reported that Trump was finished with big-dollar fundraising for the final two weeks of his campaign. Trump surrogate Newt Gingrich had it out with Fox News host Megyn Kelly, telling the host she was, quote, fascinated with sex. Kelly responded that the former speaker should perhaps work on his anger management issues. The next day, Donald Trump congratulated Gingrich on the exchange at the ribbon-cutting ceremony for the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. Hillary Clinton weathered additional fallout from the hacked emails of her campaign chairman, John Podesta. A memo detailed the intersection of Clinton Foundation fundraising and Bill Clinton's personal income. And Trump visited North Carolina to make the case for his candidacy to African-American voters, promising a new deal for black America. Kristen Soltis-Anderson is a pollster, author, and host of the influential podcast, The Pollsters. I met up with her to talk about what the numbers had to say about what to expect a week on Tuesday. For those of our listeners who are not following the polls as closely as you are, with less than two weeks to go, what overall picture are the numbers showing 
uh, both nationally and in key states like Florida. So right now nationally, Donald Trump is averaging about six points behind Hillary Clinton. The bigger challenge Donald Trump will face, however, is not that national margin, but it's it's the pathway to the 270 electoral votes. And at the moment, Donald Trump is trailing fairly significantly in many of the states that he would need to put together the 270 electoral votes. Um, there's a chance that he will win a state like Ohio, a state like Florida. Um, there's a chance he will pick up a state like Iowa, uh, a chance he will pick up a state like Nevada. Right now, he's got to figure out how to hang on to all of Mitt Romney's states, plus add 64 more electoral votes worth of states. Now, if you do the math and you add up Florida, Ohio, Iowa, Nevada, you're still not getting to 64 votes. So then the only places he really has left to go looking for them is a place like New Hampshire, where the polling again is mixed, but consistently shows Trump down by margins anywhere from four to nine points. But nonetheless, the problem that Trump has is that Hillary Clinton has many paths to victory, and Trump right now really only has one. States like Virginia, Colorado, Wisconsin seem to be too far gone for him to win back at this point. So that singular path that runs right through New Hampshire is the only path that I currently see for him to get to the White House. Now, on my side of the Atlantic, pollsters have had two big shocks in the last couple of years. There was the general election and the Brexit referendum, which took a lot of people by surprise. How much concern is there in the polling world here that there might be something going on that everyone's missing and we're all going to get a shock on Tuesday? The Brexit example is a fascinating one because you particularly hear it from Trump supporters saying, look, the polls missed all of the support for leave, and here they're missing all of the support for Donald Trump. Um, but there was a fascinating post um, at Huffington Post pollster that showed the trend lines around Brexit and then the trend lines around Clinton and Trump. And they actually, in the closing days before the Brexit vote, you did see a trend slightly back toward leave, that the, and that the polls were always fairly tight. That this idea that uh, the polls were showing a clear and convincing Remain win um, is a little bit of sort of a misinterpretation that has made its way across the Atlantic. Uh, that the margin by which you had uh, remain ahead of leave in the Brexit polls is much smaller than the margin by which you have Clinton ahead of Trump. So for the polls to be wrong here, it would ha they would have to be wrong by an enormous magnitude in order for this election to turn out much differently. Of course, there is the other factor that a lot of folks that say they support Donald Trump claim that they would be uncomfortable telling a pollster that they support Donald Trump. Uh, so the only way that the, I think the polls could dramatically be wrong would not necessarily be about sampling in this case. Trump supporters are exactly the types of people demographically who are very easy to sample in surveys. Uh, the problem would be that we are talking to Trump supporters who nonetheless are not confessing their support for him. And it's hard to know ahead of time if that's true or false, but it's also hard to imagine that that alone could make up a six to eight point deficit nationwide. Your book's called The Selfie Vote, Where Millennials Are Leading America and How Republicans Can Keep Up. How well do you think Republicans are doing it, taking your advice and indeed keeping up? Oh, goodness. You could not have created a candidate more opposed to everything that I wanted for the Republican Party than Donald Trump. Uh, SurveyMonkey, which I believe is one of the pollsters that got the closest to calling the elections in the UK, um, they, uh, they've done an electoral map of the United States of what it would look like if only millennials were allowed to vote. And it is a sea of Democratic states. Donald Trump only wins 25 electoral votes on this map. It's astounding. Um, Hillary Clinton wins over 500. Uh, and part of that is because Donald Trump, whether it's in terms of his demeanor, in terms of his approach toward America's growing diversity, whether it's in terms of his message about sort of going backwards, turning back the clock to make America great again, 
instead of looking forward with a more optimistic message, on, on count after count after count, he has been the opposite of what the Republican Party has needed. And now in most polls, he is barely achieving a quarter of the youth vote. Uh, bear in mind that when Republicans lost by a historic margin with young voters in the 2008 election, John McCain still won one out of three young voters. Um, that was a blowout of historic proportions. And yet here, despite the fact that Hillary Clinton is a much weaker candidate with this generation, only is viewed favorably by four out of ten of them, she may well win the youth vote by a larger margin than Obama ever did, even though she is much less liked than he ever was. Uh, so that really just speaks to sort of the immense damage that Donald Trump has done to the GOP with this generation. And really the only hope I think Republicans have is if young voters will be willing to forgive the GOP and say, you know what, he did seem like a sort of odd phenomenon. He doesn't seem like he's necessarily representative of all Republicans. That may be the only way that Republicans can continue to have a dialogue with this generation. You've mentioned that both parties are failing to expand upon their base, the Republicans with millennials and Democrats not enthusing these people either. In your opinion, what should both parties be doing in order to become bigger and bolder and win the voters of the future? Uh, well, this has been a, really a substance-free election. Gallup has been tracking a, a number over the last couple of decades where they ask voters, do you think that this has been an election where the presidential candidates are talking about issues that matter to you? And in previous elections, you get as high as three-quarters of voters saying yes to that question. And in fact, as Election Day approaches, more and more people say yes to that question. This election, it's been the other way around. Fewer than half say that they think that the candidates are talking about issues that matter to them, and that number has declined as we have approached Election Day. I think for a lot of younger voters, they're less interested in the traditional ideological and partisan nastiness. They want to hear things like, how are you going to help me get higher education that's affordable? How are you going to help me so that I can save up to buy a home? How are you going to make sure that I have a brighter future than my parents or grandparents' generation did? What they hear out of Donald Trump is sort of very angry rhetoric that doesn't address that at all. And what they hear out of Hillary Clinton is sort of stale talking points and very finely tuned political rhetoric that doesn't sound very authentic. I think the key to winning younger voters is to be very pragmatic. Think about the ways that young people deal in commerce nowadays. If I'm going to buy a product, I can review it. I can make my voice heard about whether it was good or bad. I have immense choices. I can shop online and choose from any number of places to purchase, sort of requiring that my, my these companies do, do right by me. Um, I can read reviews of other people to really vet and have transparency before I make a purchase. But government doesn't work like that. We often don't have choice. We don't have the option to choose between multiple different agencies for services. Um, we don't have the opportunity to make our voice heard if something's not working. Well, too bad. Uh, and we don't have a choice, a chance to see sort of data about what's working, transparency, reviews of anything. So if you think about the ways young people are living their lives and dealing in the world of commerce, it's nothing like what we hear out of government. And I think for either party, but particularly Republicans, talking about the need to make government function more like the best things in the private sector, not necessarily all of the profit making and the things that have really come under siege in, in public opinion in recent years, but the things that make markets and, and sort of the free market work and provide us with, with a better quality of life? How can we infuse our government with some of those principles of, of voice and choice? And uh, I, I think that may that more pragmatic message may be a, a, an important way for Republicans to open that door. Joe Scarborough represented Florida in Congress for three terms during the 1990s. Today, the former lawyer is the host of MSNBC's Morning Joe, ranked by the New York Times as the 
top television news programme in America. Lord Ashcroft met him in New York and began by asking whether he ever missed life on Capitol Hill. Joe, you once had the privilege of representing Florida in the United States Congress. Do you ever miss that life? Um, no, I don't. I, uh, not Congress. I, I had people after I left. I got in pretty young. I was 30, 31 and left at 38. And I had people ask me all the time, do you miss Congress? And I was polite for the first couple of years. And then finally, I just told them how I really felt, which was, no, do you miss high school? Uh, and I, I didn't. It just, it, by the time I left, it was starting to become the dysfunctional institution that it is now. It was just too hard to get things done. And how has the political landscape of Florida changed since you ran for office? Uh, the state house has become far more conservative than it was when I was there. The politics of the state have become far more conservative when, than when Jeb Bush was governor and when I was there. You know, it's funny because I remember in 94 when I was running and Jeb Bush was running, we were both considered right-wing lunatics. Jeb Bush was a dangerous, uh, dangerous right-wing racist, uh, according to a lot of the Democratic attacks. And now Jeb's too moderate to win the nomination in his party. I mean, following on from that, uh, since the recount in 2000, people around the world have come to think of Florida as the ultimate swing state. Do you think that's still the case, or do you think it's edging more permanently into the uh, blue column? Well, it is. Um, it's a tale of two states, and that happens a good bit in the United States, where, where you'll have a state that votes uh, consistently for one party, on the presidential level and votes for the other party uh, for state politics. And I'm not exactly sure why that happens, but that's, that happens in Florida. So it is, a, it is a true swing state. You just have to elect the right type of Republican that can win there. And Donald Trump uh, and his attacks on Hispanic voters, especially on Mexicans at the beginning of the process, just didn't help him with the large number of Hispanics in the state of Florida, especially when people, people look at Florida and they, they think about South Florida and think that, that it's Cuban Americans that make up the predominance of the Hispanic population in the state. Actually, a lot of Puerto Ricans have, have moved to Orlando and the I-4 corridor and they vote more traditionally democratic. So it does make it more of a swing state, but there is absolutely no excuse why Republicans shouldn't be winning states like Florida and Virginia and New Hampshire every four years. I mean, moving on to the general election, for you, what has been the most surprising development of the current race? Well, the Donald Trump, a guy that Meek and I have known for over a decade, the Donald Trump never made the pivot. He always said, even during the primary, he would tell us, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make the biggest pivot you've ever seen in your life. Mika, you're going to be so shocked by, by how dramatic my pivot is that it's going to make people's heads spin. Uh, and he said that repeatedly to us during the primary process. It never happened. He is giving the same speech today that he gave back in the fall of last year. And he has to know that that doesn't get him elected president of the United States. He's been told it a million times by a million different people. And yet I think it's the only thing that he knows. It's the only thing that he, he can do. And it's the only thing that he wants to do, I suspect. At the end of the day, he's more focused on starting a TV network than he is getting elected president. 
I mean, you've known Donald Trump for years. I mean, did your relationship change when you started to cover him as a contender for the Republican nomination? <laughs> you could say that. He started tweeting very nasty things about Mika and me, called Mika uh, neurotic, uh, psychotic, you name it. Go, to, go down the list of insults, uh, questioning her mental health, most of which Mika admits publicly. Um but uh, but it got really nasty, and he, he will still call, and we still talk, and he just can't understand why I, I'm being so tough on him. And I said, Donald, if my mother was calling to ban over a billion Muslims, I would be giving her hell on TV. You were speaking the other day about this election being an election of the haves and the have-nots. Mm -hmm. Is Trump a plausible representative of the have-nots? Well, I, 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 I would suggest he is every bit as much as Teddy Roosevelt was or FDR was. Um, I, think, I think FDR obviously came from one of the most privileged American families and figured out a way to, to reach out and speak to the have-nots in, in the midst of the Great Depression. I don't know that Donald Trump would ever do that, and I've expressed skepticism on air that he would ever do anything to the tax code that wouldn't allow billionaires the, on Wall Street who make you know their billions moving paper around in hedge funds. Um, I don't see any reason to believe that he would change the tax code in a way that would make them pay a tax rate equivalent to that of their secretaries. So I, I don't, it, it is, it is fascinating that the working class have gravitated to him the way he has. I think at the end, though, legislatively, nothing would get done. Trump has just been, uh, he's been corrosive to the process, but also he set himself up to lose from the very beginning. Demogra I mean, demographics are destiny, as we, we say, and there just aren't enough aging angry white men to elect a guy president of the United States. What heroic maneuvers would you be employing at this stage to make up lost ground, or is it now too late for Trump? I've been asking everybody that question this morning, and nobody seems to have an answer. Um, I, I think if he spent the last two and a half weeks talking about issues that he's keyed in on, that actually unite Bernie Sanders supporters and Donald Trump supporters. I think it'd make a big difference if you talked about trade, free trade deals that a lot of people in America believe, especially those in communities that have been ravaged over the past 30 years by sort of this post-industrial uh, globalization. Um, I think he would actually have more of an impact than continuing personal attacks and making the campaign about him. So, so talk about the trade deals, talk about the tax structure, talk about how Washington is rigged against the working class. He could have the mantle of change and pull in some Bernie Sanders supporters. But again, he's done everything wrong up to this point, and it would require him to display a level of discipline and stick to the issues and in a way that I think most people are skeptical. Well, anyone watching your show might... Um come to the conclusion that you are neither a Donald Trump nor a, uh, a Hillary Clinton. <laughs> that is very safe to say. Uh, I mean, life is uh, always uh, never the best of choices, mm -hmm. but the least worst uh, right. um, alternative. And which of them do you think uh, fits the least worst con alternative? My biggest concerns with Donald Trump uh, doesn't have to do with domestic policy. I'm pretty sure if Trump won, you would have 
uh, McConnell and Ryan running the Senate and the House. My biggest concern has to do with foreign policy. And right now I'm very concerned about uh, a Republican saying that Vladimir Putin can and, and the Russians can have a foothold in the Middle East for the first time since 1973, saying he trusts Putin to do the right thing in, in Syria. Um, looking at the fact that he actually said that it's ISIS that's killing people inside of Aleppo when actually it's Assad and Putin that are doing that. Um, and I, I just, it's a question of temperament. It's a question of fitness. Again, I don't know that I can, I'm in Connecticut, so I don't have to vote for Hillary Clinton. She's probably going to win by 30 points. So I can, I can vote for an independent candidate. But I think right now, given the choice of the two, I, I think most Americans agree with me, even a lot of Republicans, that she is the least of two bad choices right now, just because of foreign policy. And on a couple of personal notes, uh, more than a decade ago, you predicted the collapse of the Republican majority. In your book, Rome wasn't burnt in a day. And what predictions would you make today about the future of the Republican Party? It's going to be rough. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I, though... Uh, I'm far less uh, skeptical than most about it. We've seen it time and time again, um, the prediction of a party going over the cliff, and it, and it never happens. 1964, Barry Goldwater lost in a massive landslide. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, every political commentator that mattered, mattered said that Goldwater had set back the cause of the Republican Party and the cause of conservatism a generation. Two years later... Ronald Reagan won in California, won in a landslide and started a, a political revolution that reshaped America's political landscape for a generation. We heard the same thing in 1984 that the Democratic Party was done, 1988 that the Democratic Party was really done, then 1992 Bill Clinton comes along and again he's more of a centrist and he gives Democrats a playbook to operate from to start winning elections again. So. I think the Republican Party will be fine. They've got to figure out a way to start nominating qualified, conservative, but moderately temperamental candidates. Because you look at the big picture, Republicans as of today, before the Donald Trump election, control uh, more seats and uh, more positions of power than any time probably since the 1920s. So it's a tale of two parties. Uh, but it looks like we're also going to lose our seventh, our sixth out of seven presidential races in the popular vote. So we've got to figure out how to clean up our nominating process and elect sane people that can actually say things in the primary that don't end up haunting them in the general election. A lot of that just has to do with courage, just being able to, you know, this stare down your base and tell them the unfortunate truth that they don't want to hear. And when I did that, it always paid off for me. And finally, Joe, last month you actually told GQ magazine that you're working on a musical. Yes. Donald Trump. And, yes. Uh, what can we expect and when? Well, I don't know about when we're actually talking, believe it or not, it's crazy, talking to some record companies about a deal. and um, But it will be... The way I describe it to people who ask, it's a, going to be a combination of Hamilton and a Book of Mormon. So there's a lot of material. 
you know, you got to write 25, 30 songs. I seriously, I don't know how I, how I narrow it down. When you look at Donald Trump's life, how do you narrow it down to 25, 30 topics to sort of have fun with? In our first focus groups in Miami this week, we spoke to voters from Hispanic backgrounds. One common theme of their discussion was that America seems to be increasingly divided, both along race and party lines. I was going to say, I don't think we're divided because Obama's president or he's been president for that. I just think it's the way the world is now. Like social media, I, I, I don't I think, think it has so to do with yeah. I'm not sure if maybe in the world, but at least in the United States. And it's so much having to do with race. Like, we didn't have so many, so many problems. Outspoken, you mean, mm-hmm. because it was always there. It's just never been this outspoken. Now you open up your phone and it's there. It was there. And that has to do with social media, because mm-hmm. people hide behind people. So people <laughs> say things that they wouldn't have said when we were kids. It's the Democrats against Republicans, yes. and they're just banging heads. Yeah. And, you know, the whole point of our government is to um, push forth, you know, um, growth and, 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 and good for our country, for America. We're supposed to be moving forward and working together to make this a great country. And all we have are Republicans, you know, doing everything they can to keep the Democrats down or the Democrats, you know, the same thing. And it's just this us against them mentality, which is getting us nowhere. Although these voters had different party affiliations, many of them were quite worried about Donald Trump particularly because of what they saw as the wider effects of the way he talked about things like immigration. He's talking about deporting a bunch of almost 3.5 million people, was it? Or even even people that have been born here to undocumented parents. It just doesn't make sense to me. Somebody has to protect those those people. I mean, they are, in fact, Americans. He's not a candidate for this kind of, of presidency. And, and what I think he does is he appeals to a population that rallies behind just noise. It feels like a cult, but the people don't follow him. Do you think that Trump is racist? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Trump just taps right into something really down and dirty in our country. Thank you. Trump opened a closet where there were a lot of people who would not express uh, some of their bigotry. And I'm not saying that that I don't agree with some of the immigration things, but I think some people that were very quiet suddenly said, oh, we can be ourselves and came out. And I think that is what is polarizing. Donald Trump... uh said that to that reporter to so go back to your own country that's like whoa i always thought at one point he's like he's got to yeah, i mean no. he's got to show the public that he's an intelligent man you know and sometimes he talks to you and like oh, god that sounded so stupid why would you say something like that and you it's almost like expect it and hope you like hope and you rock. hope and you open every time you open his mouth you're like oh god can he handle the pressure without getting angry and without saying words that can destroy uh, a person's religion or a person's uh, so faith. I think that right so there yeah. is why he's losing. Yeah. I guess then you got to look at our nation, right? Yeah, because most of most of the Trump supporters are Midwesterns. A Midwestern is 
predominantly white. Several people in these groups thought immigration needed to be controlled more effectively. They just didn't think Donald Trump was the right person to do it. When my parents came here, they have a sponsor that put them in a home, got them a job, and maintained them until they got a job. Today, immigration is just open borders. Like, he's strong in the, like what you said about immigration, and we do have to have some kind of boundaries. If you're gonna come to our country and be a criminal, then you should get out, but, um, then he's just an idiot when he's talking. We also asked what they thought about their Republican Senator, Marco Rubio, who's facing a tough battle for re-election in Florida. A number of them said they'd had high hopes for him, which hadn't been fulfilled. Rubio himself, where they get it. What's against immigration? He was for it until his own party decided you need to stand with us or you're going to stand by yourself. And yeah, then he, he changed he, his mind. He, play, he plays He plays both sides. That's whatever. what he does. That's whatever. 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 And I met him when he was first starting out, and he had all of the ideals that a young person going into politics projects um, very much, you know, like to try to do the best for everybody, etc. And then he went to Washington. I remember at one point he was in the something called the Gang of Eight. Kind of reached some sort of compromise with uh, over uh, immigration reform or something like that, and then he just kept, like he gave up on it. And I figured, well, I guess he's afraid like a Tea Party will turn on him or something. And I don't know, like he just didn't convince me. Like he just kind of like twisting in the wind, like so you're seeing which one to win. In Tampa, we assembled focus groups of people who had close connections to the military people who were currently serving or were veterans or had close family members in those categories. Many felt that the current contest didn't seem to match the demands of a dangerous world. I think the last time it really mattered was Gore v. Like Bush, like that I would say mm-hmm. is like as yes. important as this. For 20 or 30 years, you know, well, ever since Gorbachev, you know, we've been kind of chummy with Russia, you know, and now all of a sudden all of the saber rattling. And... You know, there, there are real issues going on, not just in America, not just domestic issues, there's international issues, and there's a lot of nasty things going on in the world. And here we are having this reality show for an election. I'm not full on board with Hillary, um, and that's why I was leaning more towards the independent side, which would be Gary, is because I don't think either one is qualified on the two major parties at all. For many of the people in these groups, the idea of Donald Trump as commander-in-chief was a worrying one, both because of his temperament and because of his lack of political and diplomatic experience. I'm about to head to a pretty volatile area, not too long from now. uh, I'll be close to a very trigger-happy dictator uh, who has somehow just not come up at all in the debates at all. I honestly don't think Trump has a good handle on international politics and the gravity of it, because it's not just Russia. China's doing things in the China Sea that are provoking things that could happen. There's trade route route arguments that are going to be going on across the Arctic, across the China Sea. Uh, I think Hillary is hawkish, but I think Donald Trump could just do it like being a buffoon and oh, saying, you know, I don't think he would go, go, go off half cocked doing something and yeah, cause like a lot matter. more than he 
I agree. Um, I agree. Yeah. He's like a, a cannon just ready to go off. If you yeah. don't want I don't think that Donald has a firm grip of diplomacy and how to talk to other nations. He has conflicts in his own party. If he can't get along with your own party, how are you going to get along with other nations on the world stage? And I, I think he is psychologically unfit. You know, um, I just think that he has like personality problems like that just can't be fixed. Saying that he knows more about ISIS than the generals. They see Hillary Clinton in, in the seat, they might try to, you know, work on the more political channels. They see Donald Trump, they could see that as a weakness or as, you know, someone who's who's just just a, a loud mouth and like, what's he actually going to do? Hope the bear. Views of Hillary Clinton were very mixed, especially when it came to her record. The women in the group were also strikingly unexcited about the idea of Hillary as the first woman president. As a service member, she turned her back on us. Her husband turned his back on us when we were over in... Um, Somalia, we were back in the Marines, and we asked for help and turned his back on us, didn't send no help. Um, Hillary turned around in Benghazi, they have proof now that she turned her back and didn't send no help. You know, these are the things that American people are need to understand. I think she'd be less interventionist. A lot of us are sick of war. Especially after going into Iraq when we shouldn't have gone there to begin with. I mean, if you look at 30 years of service, you know, everybody, everybody's going to make mistakes. Every, everyone's going to make bad calls. But she continues to do what she thinks is right for the majority of people. I mean, I guess I consider myself a feminist, but I just want the best person. I don't care that she's female. I can barely tolerate her. Like, if it was almost anybody else, I would vote for for them rather than her. Do I trust Hillary Clinton? No, I mean, I don't trust any of the politicians, honestly, but I just feel like, given her experience, she has a less chance of starting World War III because she has the, politi the international political connections over the last two terms, you know, in her position. Well, it's like, who do you feel safer with? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you have a nuclear bomb that's ready to go off. Or, or you have her, which you really don't like, but it's like, well, which would you rather? <laughs> the man not black to start with. And just because he's black doesn't mean he can be a good president. Just because she's a woman doesn't mean she's going to be a good president. It's my commander in chief. I got to go where he go, or go where he says, do what he says to do. Yep. So that's either one of them. That's what I have to do. So I have signed the contract. That's my job. And I'll do it. Kevin, one thing that really struck me about these focus groups, and this is our sixth state on the Ashcroft in America tour, is just how absolutely divided everyone is. And political discourse this year is so divisive among friends, family, and colleagues. And so many of our focus group participants really avoid at all costs talking about this election openly. And one element of that is that they think there were already divisions in the country which have been brought to the fore, particularly by Donald Trump's rhetoric and particularly when it comes to things like immigration. And our Hispanic voters in particular felt quite uncomfortable that things were being said openly, they now felt, that had been at least under the surface before this all came along. And you see how some of this has seeped over into 
Senator Marco Rubio's re-election bid, he originally supported immigration reform and changed his views to be more in line with the Republican primary electorate. And that's really hurting him now, I think, in Florida. You would think, given the distaste they had for both candidates, that third parties might be doing better this time around. But we haven't really seen much evidence of that, either for, for Gary Johnson or Jill Stone. And especially with the military groups, you know, talking to these men and women who have served in the military and have served overseas in recent deployments in Iraq or Afghanistan, they're particularly concerned about the tenor of the foreign policy debate and again echoed what we've heard from so many participants over this past month, just that there's a widespread belief that Trump would inadvertently cause World War Three and even four or five, as one participant put it. Yeah, we're hearing the same things we have from other people, that you never know quite what he's going to trigger on the international stage. But for these people with military connections, that feels a lot closer to home, particularly those who are still serving and maybe sent um, to dangerous parts of the world um, to do a dangerous job. So that was, that was very close to their hearts. I think, on balance, most of them, unenthusiastically, um, thought they would rather have um, Hillary making the decisions than Donald Trump. Even though Benghazi and her handling of the Benghazi attack troubled a lot of the military community as represented in this particular focus group. Benghazi was more of an issue with those participants than I've ever heard previously. John Darman is a journalist and presidential historian. I spoke to him about the parallels, or not, between this election and President Lyndon Johnson's 1964 sweeping victory over Barry Goldwater, as John chronicled in his book about the election appropriately titled Landslide. What kind of historical context can you give to describing this election? Is it like anything we've ever seen before in American politics? Um, I think at this point, it's pretty safe to say it's, it's unique. There, there have been plenty of parallels that you can make. Um, I wrote a book about the 1964 election, and there, there are certainly some similarities there, where you had Barry Goldwater, um, who was a, the nominee of the Republican Party, who was seen to be very far outside of the mainstream, um, and deeply mistrusted and often disliked uh, by the establishment of the Republican Party. Um, and that election ended with a big landslide win uh, for the Democrats. Um, but I think particularly in the last month, uh, this election has really sort of defied all sorts of, of previous precedents. Um, you know, I think at, at various points, Donald Trump has been compared to Andrew Jackson, who was a sort of, you know, populist figure who ran against the elites in Washington and had a sort of clean the swamp uh, message in, in the 1820s. Um, but, you know, when, I, when you think about what Donald Trump has been saying about our electoral process in the last couple of weeks and questioning the legitimacy of our elections uh, before, before you know, election day even comes, um, that's much more extreme than Andrew Jackson in the 1820s. Um, if you think about the 1824 election, um, the guy who came in third, John Quincy Adams, got made president. Andrew Jackson came in first. He won the popular vote. And he, and he had the presidency taken away from him in the House of Representatives. Jackson believed that he had lost that election through a corrupt bargain, where Henry Clay sort of traded his support to the Adams forces in exchange for being named uh, Secretary of State. Jackson believed that, but he didn't say, well, this is, a, this is a rigged election. Actually, on the day that the House gave the presidency to Adams, 
Um, Jackson made a point of going out and paying his respects to Adams. He did it in a pretty chilly fashion, uh, but he still did it. You can't imagine uh, Donald Trump doing that. So, you know, even when you go to the most extreme moments of our history where our electoral process um, seemed pretty shaky, it, it, it doesn't even compare to what we've been seeing in the last few days. Do you think that Hillary Clinton is likely to win by a large electoral college majority? Do you think it's even conceivable that she could win the popular vote by a landslide this year? I think right now, based on the latest polling, um, there's a good chance that she could win um, a very large electoral college uh, majority, um, greater even than, than the majority that President Obama won in 2008. And once you start talking about more than 350 electoral votes, that gets up into the territory of electoral college uh, landslide. I think a popular vote landslide, which is probably defined as a double-digit popular vote win, uh, becomes harder for Hillary Clinton just because of the nature of the moderate, the, the modern electorate. Um, 50 years ago, you had a lot more voters in both parties who were sort of ideologically heterogeneous. They could um, identify with a party because of sort of familial attachments and regional attachments, but they would be open to, to a lot of positions from candidates on the other side, and it wasn't that big a deal for them to go over and switch and vote uh, party when, when, they, when they felt strongly about a particular candidate. The two parties are much farther apart, and the sort of hardcore um, base that a candidate can depend upon uh, in either party is, is, a, is pretty solid. I mean, Donald Trump um, has done a lot of things to alienate a lot of voters, um, but he'll still probably get at least 38% uh, of the vote um, because of the, the just sort of hardcore Republican electorate that will be with their candidate no matter what. If Democrats do win by a large margin, how does the history of landslides in the 20th century give us a clue as to how the Republican Party can recover in the aftermath? So it's interesting. This, if you look at a comparable moment in the 1964 election, about a week or two out um, from, from Election Day, um, there was a speech that was broadcast on NBC uh, by a Goldwater campaign surrogate um, making the case for Barry Goldwater. It was called The Time for Choosing. And the person who gave that speech um, was an underemployed actor named Ronald Reagan. And it was probably the only good moment that the Goldwater campaign had in the fall of 1964. Uh, Reagan gave this very stirring um, case against Lyndon Johnson in favor of Goldwater um, that, that people responded to um, and, and loved. It didn't help Goldwater that year, but it did launch uh, Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign uh, pre pre and, and Ronald Reagan's political career. It gave people the idea that this former actor could be someone who could actually make conservatism palatable uh, to, a, to a large audience. And so, you know, the comfort for the Republican Party right now is that as bleak as things seem and as unclear as the path ahead may be, um, their savior may be out there uh, figuring it out um, without anyone really even knowing it, uh, because that was the case for Reagan in the 1960s. And that's it for Ashcroft in America this week. Keep tweeting us with your comments, questions, and thoughts using the hashtag Ashcroft in America. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and catch up with previous episodes, including Lord Ashcroft's excellent interview with Mitt Romney. All our research is published at lordashcroftpolls.com, and you can keep up to date with the Ashcroft in America tool on our Facebook page. Meanwhile, with 10 days to go to the election, we're heading to our final destination. We'll see you next week in Ohio. Ohio.